Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Lincoln, I can't believe you're here. Ah! You're at the beach for the very first time. You want to see it? You want me to turn you around so you can see it? Welcome to Right Lane, a podcast of the Tampa Bay Times. Each week, Times reporter Lane DeGregory discusses her stories and answers your questions. The focus is on craft. My name is Maria Crillo, and I'm the Enterprise Editor at the Times. Today, we're going to continue to discuss Lincoln's Shot, our eight-part serial narrative. You can read the entire series at tampabay.com slash Shot. But here on the podcast, we're walking through the chapters one by one. And it starts with a reading from Lane. This is Chapter 5. Today's topic, the life. In the parking lot of Quaker State and Lube Restaurant, they bent into the back of their van, struggling to get their son out without disconnecting all his machines. Lincoln DeLuna was two and a half, and he'd grown too big for his medical car seat. But his parents couldn't afford the $1,500 for the next size, so they had propped his frail body between foam wedges and laid him on the floor. That Saturday... In May 2016, they were a half hour late to his first fundraiser, a bud run organized by a group of bikers. What if this is too much for him, Maggie Hoyle German asked her husband, bending to untangle the tubes twisted around their son. There's so many people here. Those bikes are so loud, and it's so, so hot. Lincoln was born with X-linked myotubular myopathy, a rare terminal illness that makes it almost impossible for him to move. His parents seldom took him out of the house, but they had promised the children's charity that had organized the event that they would make an appearance. So they settled him into his stroller, adjusted clamps around his temples to hold up his head, tugged a teal ball cap over his dark curls, and propped a new pair of sunglasses in front of his sleepy eyes. Bikers from across Tampa Bay were crowded on the patio in Clearwater, drinking beer and waiting. On the covered stage by the bar, auction items were labeled. A football signed by former Buccaneers coach John Gruden, a guitar once played by Willie Nelson, wrestling boots that Hulk Hogan had scuffed up. Maggie pushed Lincoln into the sea of people and asked, You ready? Slowly, he raised his right thumb. As more than 100 people cheered, the MC shouted into a microphone, Hey everyone, here he is. Almost a year had gone by since Maggie and Anthony DeLuna had signed up their son to be part of a clinical trial that scientists said could save him. There was still no word on when or even if testing would begin. But they were looking forward to a future they couldn't once dream of. They had hired specialists to help Lincoln develop his muscles and his mind. They'd ordered all the medical equipment insurance would cover, tubes, syringes, gloves, gauze, nebulizers, and oxygen sensors. There were still so many things that Lincoln needed that they couldn't afford. Anthony's mom, Rhonda Clark, had been a Hillsborough deputy and was friends with many of the bikers. She hoped they could raise enough to buy the bigger car seat or maybe even $20,000 for an electric wheelchair that Lincoln could learn to drive on his own. You want to wave to the people, asked Rhonda, who was rolling Lincoln around the Clearwater restaurant. They all came to see you. Are you okay? Lincoln's face flushed, then went white. An alarm went off on the portable ventilator. 
While worried bikers looked on, Maggie suctioned his nose and mouth. Anthony adjusted the settings that controlled his breathing. Maggie's sister, Katie, pulled ice packs from a cooler and laid them on Lincoln's cheeks. Is that better? she asked. Lincoln didn't respond. His hands lay limply at his sides. We've got to get him back to the van, Maggie said, scooping him into her arms. He needs to cool down. They were still fanning Lincoln in their old Dodge Caravan when someone paid $300 for a lightning jersey signed by Vinnie LeCavier, and someone else bid $720 for Charlie Daniels' fiddle. Later, after Lincoln felt better, Maggie walked back toward the stage with him. She heard the MC shout, That's $1,100 for George Strait's guitar. She paused to catch her breath. Who were these strangers paying so much to help her son? At the end of the event, the bikers had raised more than $17,000. Maggie took the microphone and turned Lincoln to face the crowd. You'll never understand how much this will help us through the dark, hard days. A few months later, on an October morning, Lincoln heard the front door open and started clapping. It was a Tuesday. He loved Tuesdays. Who's here, Maggie asked. Who is it? Lincoln signed, friend. That's right, said Maggie. Which friend? Slowly, scrutinizing his thin fingers to make sure he got it right, Lincoln spelled L-A-R-R-Y. Over the last year, a half dozen physical therapists had come to work with Lincoln. Most were terrified to move him, afraid they might hurt him. Larry Lester wasn't worried. He'd never known a boy with Lincoln's disorder, but in his 20 years helping patients through the Florida Elks Children's Therapy Services, he'd treated myriad muscle diseases. He knew that, with myopathies, muscles don't deteriorate like they do with dystrophies. Your muscles are just asleep, he told Lincoln and his parents. It's our job to wake them up. If Lincoln ever got gene therapy, whatever muscle he had would have to be strong enough to withstand rehab. First, Larry massaged Lincoln's sloped shoulders, working out kinks like a chiropractor, then tipped his chin side to side. The boy closed his eyes. That feels better, doesn't it? Next, Larry spread a paisley quilt on the floor and carefully lay Lincoln in the center. Okay, let's use your left hand to touch your right knee. You can do it, said Larry. Instead of moving his hand, Lincoln tried to bend his knee. Oh, you're such a cheater, the therapist smiled. But good, good movement with that leg. Larry worried that Lincoln was spending too much time on his back, causing his face and chest to flatten. All that pressure wasn't good on his organs. Let's try it on your side, he said, rotating Lincoln back and forth. Now use your core and let me see you lift those hips. Maggie laughed. Big booty pop. Excellent work, said the therapist. You're getting so much stronger. This is the best movement yet. He really wasn't moving at all before, Anthony said. He seemed so much happier, not being static. They tried putting Lincoln in a stander, but he was exhausted. He signed, help, then nap. By the time they plugged his machines back in, he'd fallen asleep. The sky was silver, the sun just beginning to slip, when Anthony pulled into Sunset Beach. Maggie got out, shading her eyes. Her sister bent over Lincoln in the back seat. Hello, super cutie. We're doing this, Katie squealed. We're actually here. By March 2017, they'd grown tired of keeping Lincoln from the world. They started showing him YouTube videos of dolphins, fish, seahorses. They told him about saltwater and sunsets. And on a blistery Sunday, Maggie and Anthony had left Lincoln with Katie and gone to Walmart, where they filled their cart with plastic shovels and pails, a red crab and green turtle, a blue ball. They bought SPF 50 sunscreen, extra batteries for the portable ventilator. They came home, loaded all the equipment into the van, and strapped Lincoln into a thick plastic brace, which kept his torso from collapsing.
his Iron Man outfit. Then they drove 90 minutes southwest. Look at you, Anthony cried, strapping Lincoln into his medical wheelchair. Are you excited? We're finally going to the beach. They hadn't been since Maggie was pregnant when they thought their baby would be stillborn. She'd wanted him to feel the waves against her womb. There it is, Maggie pointed, pushing Lincoln to the end of the walkway. Do you like it? Wait, let me suction you. Are you okay? It took ten minutes to stabilize him. Then his wheelchair got stuck in the sand. So Maggie carried him until she felt her feet sink in the surf. Anthony trailed behind, keeping the ventilator dry. Do you want to feel it, Maggie asked, dangling Lincoln's limp feet above the shore. She dipped him until his toes traced ripples in the wet sand. There, that's salt water, she cried. I can't believe we're really doing this. The sun warmed Lincoln's face. The wind tousled his hair. Maggie pressed a shell into his hand. Mama, Lincoln signed. I love the sun. I love the water. Anthony built a little castle in the sand. By the time Lincoln was three and a half, he'd learned to sign more than 200 words. The breathing tube made talking impossible, and he couldn't move his left hand much, so his speech therapist had taught him a modified version of American Sign Language. In a notebook by his crib, they kept a list of all his signs. Mama, Daddy, Aunt Kit Kat, Nurse, Cat, Cow. He could even string together sentences. New diaper, please, now. Play with Mr. Potato Head. I want iPad. They'd fallen into a sort of normal, where Maggie and Anthony felt they could handle Lincoln's daily crises. Mackenzie Coker, his speech therapist for more than a year, had hesitated to teach him words for foods he might never be able to eat or sports he might never play. But Maggie and Anthony encouraged her to show him everything. On a Monday in April 2017, Mackenzie leaned over Lincoln, beaming. Are you ready to play, she asked. Lincoln's mouth curled up slightly at the edges. For months, Mackenzie had been massaging his cheeks, manipulating his lips, teaching him how to smile. He knew how happy it made everyone when he tried. Today, Mackenzie wanted to do something different. She reached into her shoulder bag, pulled out a bouquet of lollipops. After gene therapy, Mackenzie told Maggie, Lincoln should be able to eat instead of getting food through a stomach tube. But he had to be taught to suck and swallow. I want to start introducing things into his mouth, textures and flavors so he won't gag, she said. Those also would be the first steps toward talking. Maggie dreamed about Lincoln's voice, what he would sound like, what he would say. On the best nights, she woke up believing she heard him whisper, Mama, that would be enough. All right, Mr. Lincoln, today for your tasting pleasure, we have lemon, grape, strawberry, cream soda, said the therapist, showing him each dum-dum. Pick whatever you please. Lincoln pointed to the green one, sour apple, which Mackenzie unwrapped. Here, try it, she said, touching it to his pale lips. Open your mouth. He wouldn't, so Maggie took a lick. Mmm, feels funny, sticky, doesn't it? Asked Mackenzie. Here, give me your tongue, all the way out. When Lincoln parted his lips just a little, she popped in the lollipop. He seemed surprised, then closed his mouth around it. Good job, hold it. How does that taste? Lincoln stuck up his right thumb. Then, for the first time, they saw him swallow. What? asked Anthony, who'd just come into the room. How did you get him to do that? Everyone started clapping, even Lincoln. Maggie kept checking websites, emailing researchers, begging doctors for updates about the clinical trial. She messaged moms of other boys with myotubular myopathy, rumors and facts flying through their Facebook family. 
They learned that doctors would include 16 boys across the United States in their research at three different hospitals, but only 12 boys would be included in the trial, and only nine would get the treatment. One at each location would remain the control. A year or more later, after the trial was completed, those boys would get shots too. Maggie posted news on her Facebook page. The dogs that had been dosed were still doing beautifully. The company manufacturing the gene therapy, a dentist therapeutics, had raised millions more in investments. The University of Florida had enrolled four boys in its trial. Lincoln was the first, then a two-year-old from Orlando and a boy in Texas who was about Lincoln's age. The other boy in the study was Jamie, a two-year-old who lived in Melbourne, Florida. For months, Maggie had been sharing FaceTime calls with his mom, Angelica Santiago Townsend. Jamie was much sicker than Lincoln because the defect was in a different place on the chromosome. His face was always slick with secretions, which streamed from his nose and mouth. He didn't react to voices, faces, or TV. He'd almost died at home six times in six months, and ambulances had rushed him to the hospital. Lincoln still had never been hospitalized, a point of great pride for his parents. Later that spring, Maggie and Angelica blew up each other's phones. The Food and Drug Administration had approved a new drug application for a gene therapy trial to correct their son's disease. Oh my God, Maggie posted on Facebook, crying and shaking uncontrollably. There was still no word on when trials might start, but at least now, there didn't seem to be an if. He needs a voice, the preschool teacher had said. Lincoln's vocabulary was stellar, she told Maggie and Anthony. On flashcard tests, his comprehension scores were in the six-year-old range, twice his age. He could read sight words in Dr. Seuss books and sign three verses of Itsy Bitsy Spider. Lincoln's parents and some of the nurses understood his signs, but he couldn't communicate with anyone else. Donna Daly had been coming over to work with Lincoln for months, two days a week. In the fall, she wanted to start video conferencing Lincoln into her classroom at Mendenhall Elementary. He would need to interact with other kids. So she brought him a computerized device with big square buttons, each with a colorful picture that corresponded to a word. Fan. Blanket. Frustrated. Suction. More. When he pushed one, the machine spoke. He's been using it a lot, Maggie told the teacher. He has so much to say. That morning, when she tried to go to her office, Lincoln had typed, Where are you going? This is not what I want. So, of course, I came back and cuddled on him, Maggie said. The teacher handed him the device. Now, what do you want to do? Without hesitating, Lincoln pushed the button in the center of the pad. The mechanical voice said, Walk. On a warm weekend in May 2017, Maggie's mother stood outside the front door, sobbing. She wouldn't knock. She couldn't go in. After 30 years, she was still crippled by grief. She blamed herself for her son Adam's death, which had left her too damaged to take care of her daughter. Now she felt she had doomed her only grandson. Marsha Hoyle, 49, hadn't seen Maggie in years. She'd never met Lincoln. She couldn't bear to see him suffer or to fall in love with him. But by then, Maggie said science might actually save him, and Marcia's husband convinced her that she should see them both. They'd driven six hours from the panhandle, and he had pushed her to get out of the car. You need to do this. You need to see that they're okay, said her husband, Jerry. He put his arm beneath her elbow. She took a deep breath. He knocked. Come on in, Maggie called. Wash your hands. Marcia did. Then she froze. Standing by the sink, she saw Lincoln and started shaking. 
Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Anthony walked over and wrapped his arms around his mother-in-law. I want you to know that our son is alive because of you, Anthony told Marcia. If you hadn't had Adam and held on to him, we wouldn't have known we could do this. Maggie hugged her mother, too, and her aunt and uncle who'd come, everyone embracing in the kitchen. Then they walked into the living room. They'd moved Lincoln out of his crib that morning into a real big boy bed. Stretched out on new mint green sheets, he looked so long. Marcia stared at her grandson through tears, not daring to reach out and touch him. The whoosh of the ventilator brought her back to her own son. She couldn't believe Lincoln was so alive, even smiling at her. He's just amazing, Marcia cried. She bent over her grandson and cooed, You're going to get that cured. Lincoln looked up, raised his right hand, and signed the sentence his parents had taught him. Hello, Grandma Marcia. <laughs> Damn. You know, I've read that story many times, and it's still, uh, that's still pretty powerful. That was our, um, that was the installment where you really meet Lincoln, where really he comes alive. And um, I, it's funny, Lane is reading, and Monica Herndon, who's the producer, is sitting over here, and every time Lincoln, there's something about Lincoln, she's she has this look on her face, like, you know, because it really is, it's very emotional then. It's like, oh, he's in there, and he's he's connecting, and... He's a little boy, you know. He's doing little boy things. And, and they take him out into the world for the first yeah. time. I mean, that I remember that with my own kids when they were just months old and just the wonder of seeing them see the world for the first time. And he, here he is, you know, almost three. Right. You know, so he's taking it in such a different way. So this one, it, I mean – it was long. We had we had a lot to get across, and there was there was a bunch of things we left out. But um, we felt like there were a lot of good choices to make. Obviously, the beach scene. The beach scene is so amazing to, like you said, get him out. Um, he's in the, out in the world. It's it's such an ordinary thing for most people, but such an extraordinary thing for them. And then the therapy. And you went to who knows? I don't know if you even kept track how many therapy sessions. Yeah, at least were you a dozen. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then trying to pick the right one and what, you know. And, of course, you had, I mean, it was a great moment with the teacher and him picking out what he wanted now, which is, of course, heartbreaking. That flipped us out. I, I was standing on the other side of the board because the photographer was behind Lincoln, and she could took that wonderful picture of him actually pushing the button, and I hadn't seen what he was doing. So when all of a sudden I hear this voice, and it's going, walk, walk, walk. I was like, no way. Is that really what he wants to do? It was heartbreaking. Um, for you, so talk a little bit about Lincoln and, and kind of him, like we've talked a lot about whether the series is really about Lincoln or about Maggie, and it feels like it's about Maggie, but Lincoln is Maggie's heart. I mean, it's right. So like talk about sort of bringing him to life here in this, um, and, and you, I guess, got a chance to see him emerge. Yeah, we really did. I mean, that was kind of amazing to, to be able to in bed in a family for so long that you can actually watch the evolution of this little guy who went from kind of being 
a breathing little, not even breathing, little blob whose machine was breathing for him. Right. To like, he learned how to sign our names and he would say hello when we came in and he had wants and desires and he would do funny things. And it was just like, it was pretty amazing to watch it. And Maggie and Anthony had known it all along, but, you know, I don't think any parent or most parents don't feel like they have to justify that their son's worth saving. They very much wanted the world to know, like, this little guy is in here. Watch this. Watch this. You know, and even when they took him to doctor's appointments and stuff or every time a new nurse would come in, Maggie would show them all these videos of him doing things on her iPhone, you know, just because even if he was asleep, they wanted him to know, no, he's sick, but he doesn't feel good today. But look what he did yesterday, you know, and, and uh, that was pretty special over the years watching him emerge. You want to talk a little bit about why these scenes what, what what captured your imagination beyond the beach one, which is pretty obvious? Yeah, the beach one, though, I want to say that came out of the blue. I mean, Maggie called me, I think, about 3 o'clock on a Sunday afternoon and said, I don't know what you're doing today, but we're getting ready to go to the beach. And it was like, oh, okay, so drop everything. You know, we couldn't not go to that, you know. So John and I both, like, scurried down there to meet him, and that that was even more special than we thought it would be, you know. Um, and that's a that's another lesson right there for all of you uh, journalists out there who want to be very successful. So Elaine de Gregory and a John Pendergraf will drop everything and go, and won't worry about the fact that it's their day off or they have other things going on. They'll know that they got to be there for the story, and so they follow the story. And it's 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 a sacrifice, but it's part of if you really want to capture. The story, and you know, we talk a lot about this as, as when we're doing enterprise. We don't work nine to five. It's not that kind of world. People are not. That's not when everything happens necessarily. It's not all going to fit into a nice, neat little um, schedule. So it's that's it's good to know because I think people don't always. Sometimes your people are not um, willing to do that, you know, or they just don't think it's going to necessarily be worth it. Or, yeah, I mean, and it was inconvenient. My son was home from college. It was my last afternoon I got to spend with him before he went away, you know, five states away again. And so it was like I was torn for half a second, and then it was like there's no way I could recreate that even if someone took great pictures. You know, Maggie was like, oh, of course I'll put stuff on my Facebook. Well, no, I mean, we had to be there for that, and, and it, it paid off in spades, you know. Um, the other scenes, I think, we did. We had three different um, therapists and a teacher, so we were trying to decide, like, and, and um, scores of nurses, like, which ones of those do you include and which do you leave out? So I think you and I talked early on about McKenzie, the speech therapist, was probably his favorite and the one he was closest to. Um, and so I had probably six or seven scenes with McKenzie. But the first time, I mean, I kept thinking about that, the first time he put anything in his mouth that he could taste how amazing is that, you know? And the, there was those cute little dum-dums and the mom was playing. There's a really cute scene in the video where they're just playing with the lollipops. And so that, that kind of jumped out over scenes where she was teaching him to sign new words or she was teaching him, you know, parts of his body and things like that. Um, the occupational therapist came a lot. Um, but she played with him more. It was like, you know, let's make a paper snowman. You know, let's make mommy a paper valentine. And she did most of the stuff. So it wasn't... You weren't watching Lincoln, like, evolve right. in right. those as much. The physical therapist was the one who was kind of the harshest with him, which was also interesting because everybody was so careful, like, to be gentle with him and not break him. And the physical therapist was like, come on, dude, little man, you can do this, you know, and really got him in the six months that this new physical therapist came. We, we watched Lincoln get a lot more comfortable, a lot more mobile, um, a lot less resistant to being moved around. And um, so that that was, I thought, a good scene to show, like, just how much effort it takes to keep this immobile kid 
halfway healthy, you know, and then also the idea of like maybe they're preparing him for rehab down the road. One of the scenes that never made it into the series, which was pretty captivating and you were there for, was when one of the other little boys in the trial passed away. And um, I remember, I mean, you were shook up and they were shook up. um, And it was, um, you know, it really brought home how tenuous his life can be. Um, And we can talk a little more, too, as we go along, why why it didn't make it in. But one of the things that we – this is a roller coaster we're latching you on to. So this this was sort of a happy installment, but there's a lot that goes on that that if you've been listening, you know where even getting to this point was amazing for this family because – you know, the, what he has is, is a battle. They, they really, and the fact that he, uh, at this point, is so healthy, really, is, is incredible. But that scene, you, I, I mean, do you regret that we didn't, that didn't make it in? Or do you feel like? No, I think because of where it happened in the narrative, it would have been a real big diversion, you right. know, both emotionally as well as intellectually. And, and it was real hard. Like, you didn't, I wouldn't want to steal the thunder from Lincoln. You right. know what I mean? And so when he almost died, three times, that to me, for the readers, should have been more dramatic than when this little boy we didn't even meet died. You know what I mean? So I think you you told me why you didn't think it should go there, and I hesitated for a minute because it really was dramatic watching. I mean, Maggie just, like, fell on the floor, like, literally fell on the floor in a heap in front of us. And Anthony couldn't console her, and and we ended up having to leave because it was just so awful. Um, But um, for them, I mean, especially. But I I think, you know, it's kind of like... So so many scenes hit these highs and lows. It was hard to keep the center, you know, and I, I didn't want to keep bringing people down, down, down when I needed them to be able to have a little bit more depth for Lincoln. Right. You know. Right. Um, we mention we introduce uh, Jamie in this one, and as if you haven't read this, the complete series yet, you'll know that he's he comes back into play. But um, you know th- that too. We again, we our focus is on Lincoln, so we're very careful about how many how many people we're introducing and when we're introducing them, and and even the the therapist. I think um, I think it worked out well to give them each a little bit of time there. Even though they're not major characters, but they they get enough room, I think, to develop a little bit. Well, I think they help Lincoln come alive, too. Mm -hmm. You know, you see that there's this effort that it's not – I mean, there's other families with little boys like this who don't bring in these therapists, and the kids just lie there on their back the whole day, you know. So I I think that was important, too, to show their effort that they're going to – and he's going to – to emerge. One thing I wanted to mention, I mean, this obviously we're talking about a great deal of reporting and and moving through a long period of time, which a lot of stories you're not doing that. But with almost every story, you control uh, how much attention you give to certain things and when do you speed up and slow down. And and there there are parts of this series where you are we are going months in time, like we'll we'll jump from one moment to months later. Um, And then there are other times when we're really slowing it down and we drag out a day. And I think that those are really conscious choices. And when when do you control, you know, when you want to keep readers in a moment and when do they not need to know? So I, I think even when with with stories that take a lot less time and effort, you got to be thinking consciously about that kind of thing. And when when do you you know, what's your best stuff? What do you, what do you really want people to slow down and pay attention to 
and what can you just quickly move them through, right? Well, and I think, you know, that comes through a lot in the um, before I start writing process of it. And I think we've talked to another podcast, but just as a reminder, it's really important to me to have a timeline, mm-hmm. to have an incredibly detailed timeline so we can go through it. I think this this chapter we just talked about spanned about two years almost, right. or, you know, and so we, I was able to say to you, okay, there was six speech therapy sessions. Which one is is the most important, right. you know, there were four times that, that they went to, to see the doctors at the University of Florida, which is the most important, you know, and we ended up not even putting that those scenes in there. We just didn't even take them to Gainesville in this chapter, you know, although they, they went four times that year. So I think ha- having that chronology and then being mindful in the editing, I know you helped me out a lot with, like, let's put a signpost in for readers about right. what month this is, what what and year this we? is, where are we? Yeah, and that, that helps a lot. Of, also because it's serialized, you know, if I think if it was one big long story, I might have been more inclined to just put little datelines in the story and just be like, okay, now it's May of 2016, you know, but you couldn't really do that when it was serialized like right. that. I think Lane had a timeline for... Lincoln had a timeline for gene therapy, had a timeline for their visits, and their what had uh, video, what had photographs. Um, there were timelines all over the place. We have all kinds of timelines that, but it is. It was a good. I mean, it, it made it easier too for us to go through it together. Oh yeah, and at the end, because we had diff- we had three different photographers, we had three different editors at the beginning on this, and we had three different <laughs> photographers on this. So it helped having Google- only one writer. <laughs> it helped having Google Docs so that everybody else could jump in and out of it too. You know what I mean? I, I think when we started putting the stuff together, and we could say, oh, this V beside these scenes means there's video for it. This A means there's only audio for it. You know, so it was it, on the other end, it was helpful too. I know you've gotten comfortable with this now, but like, because you, in terms of letting go of your reporting, because you got. You got a ton of reporting on this story. And even with an eight-part series, I mean, there's, you know, Lane has enough material here for a book, right? But so... Maggie wants to write a book. <laughs> what's, um, when did you get comfortable with that? Or, what, or did, as you go, went along, did you just sort of decide that, oh, yeah, okay, you understand that you're going to... A lot of this isn't going anywhere near your story. It's just... I think, yeah, the more I gather, the more I have to be willing to let go. You know what I mean? Like, um, my friend Karen, who works here, she has this thing about if if you buy a new blouse in your closet, you have to get rid of one that's in there to keep it balanced. And I kind of feel like that with the reporting (laughs) sometimes. Like, if I get a really good scene at the beach here, I'm going to let this one go at the hospital, you know, and... It's still hard, and, and I'm glad I have you. I'm really lucky to have some I trust to go, nah, you need to just let that go. And sometimes you have to write it. I mean, sometimes it's almost like I have to cough it up and get mm-hmm. it out than to realize, like, oh, that doesn't really stack up, you know, with the other stuff. But in reporting something over three years, you know, it was interesting to go back. I had 42 legal pads of notes for this story, not including all the other folders and stuff. But so the stuff that I thought was really amazing and exciting in April of 2016 became not that great by November of 2018. Right. You know what I mean? So it shifted as the story changed, too. I love the blouse analogy. That's good. <laughs> Karen Baird. We'll have to get Karen Fashion on. maven. Yes. yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, if you have a question for Lane about this story or this series, uh, please email it to writelane at tampabay.com. That's W-R-I-T-E-L-A-N-E at tampabay.com and join us next week on Wednesday morning as we continue to discuss Lincoln's shot. Also, check out some of the other podcasts that we have that the Tampa Bay Times is producing. Right now, you can check out uh, Blood and Truth from our friend Leonora LaPeter Anton, who's doing a serialized podcast about an old murder case. 
And our friends and features do Life of the Party each week, which is um, it's like you're sitting down having lunch with your girlfriends. So check that out. This podcast was produced by Monica Herndon. Music was composed and performed by Dan DeGregory. Thanks for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.